It's a joy to be able to bring to you the Word of God this morning. Please take your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 40. This morning we'll be looking at a portion of God's Word that makes a clear distinction between the fickle fans of Jesus versus the true followers of Christ. A clear distinction between people that are operating under self-righteousness versus people who are operating under the sovereign grace of God. And so let's read our text this morning. We're going to read the whole passage, verses 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other small boats came from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The crowds are always fickle, are they not? Out of one side of their mouth, we see in the Gospels, they yell Hosanna in the highest, while five days later they'll be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. See, first century Israel was driven and tossed by the sea of their own self-righteousness, and they were double-minded and unstable in all their ways. Like Ishmael, the illegitimate promised child of Abraham, they were a wild donkey of a man. They were, their hand was against everyone, and everyone's hand was against them. They were a pebble in the Roman's shoe because they wanted their political freedom, and you could hear the pride seeping out of their self-righteousness. Don't you know who I am, Rome? Give me my rights! We serve Yahweh. We are the people of God who judged Egypt. Don't you remember that? And yet their prideful, self-righteous attitudes 
set themselves against their God by virtue of their ignorant zeal, unbelief, and flat-out rejection of the truth. They were only okay with partial truth. So long as it didn't touch their works-based system, their works-based righteousness. But before we come down so hard on first century Israel as much as they deserved it, consider with me the fickleness of our own contemporary culture. It really is the universal predisposition of man to think that his works can contribute something to the saving work of God. We would be wise to remember the warning in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, which says that there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's a terrifying thought. For one to think of himself to be right with Almighty God throughout the entire course of his life, only to find out that it was the pathway of death. And no doubt that that way, that cursed way, That deceptive way is the way of self-effort, the religion of works that teaches that man can pick himself up by his bootstraps to accomplish his own salvation. Very similar to the Jews in Jesus' day, Solomon's words remain true that there is nothing new under the sun because many, even today, possess the same fickle, self-righteous attitudes concerning Christ. Man is okay with Jesus so long as it does not interfere with his own carnal desires. After all, who doesn't mind being prayed for? Go to somebody on the street and say, can I pray for you? I want to tell you about Jesus. Who's going to tell you no? Because they like Jesus as long as it has something good for them. Tell them that Jesus is a Savior who wants to make you whole. And you may get a warm smile filled with gratitude. After all, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Take Jeremiah 29, 11 and rip it out of its context and make the gospel more about man than God. And no one will have a problem with you. Rip the gospel of any exclusivity that Christ alone saves. And make the message palatable to the whims of sinful men and their carnal desires. Don't tell them that Jesus is the only way. Don't tell them that they got to repent of their sins. And certainly do not talk about the realities of hell. Follow after the contemporary religion of tolerance. And the fickle crowds will love you. You'll get a platform on a news media network. You'll get heralded as a peacemaker. And everyone will love you by virtue of your unconditional tolerance for them. Here's the problem. Do that only if you want to ensure judgment for both yourself and those you tolerate. Blessed is the man who is not condemned by what he tolerates. Go ahead and bite into Satan's lie. And he'll give you the whole world in exchange for your self-righteous devotion. And yes, any belief that elevates the opinion of man over God's word, over the truth, is self-righteousness. Just as the Jews had a great need in Jesus' day to put to death their self-righteousness and trust in Jesus, so too the same is still true today. The contemporary man is still called by God to deny himself, repent of his sin, and with the eye of faith turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive eternal life. The greatest need of man has always been the same, has it not? Man needs forgiveness. Man needs his sins forgiven. Man needs salvation. And the only way that one can lay hold of this great salvation is by first presupposing that his self-righteous works will not accomplish that greatest need. Friend, Jesus came to save those who are sick, did he not? He did not come to save those who are well, correct? Faith and works will not save you. Romans chapter 4 verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. Our works, according to God, are but filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 says. Hell 
is the wage of our works. And so in order for the crowd seeking Jesus to get saved, they needed to comprehend that reality. And the same is true for every generation. They needed to renounce their self-righteousness. And so in our text this morning, we're going to look at this narrative in three scenes. Three scenes that condemn self-righteousness and should instruct you that salvation is sovereignly distributed by God alone, for God alone, through God alone. And if you're a note taker, here's the outline in verses 22 through 25, scene one, the self-righteous seekers. In verses 26 through 34, scene 2, the self-righteous opposition. And in verses 35 through 40, scene 3, the soul-saving sustenance. The self-righteous seekers, the self-righteous opposition, and the soul-saving sustenance. And so let's begin scene 1, the self-righteous seekers. Let's read our verses again and let it get it in our heads. Verses 22 through 25. On the next day, the crowd which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boats there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other small boats came from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats And came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now to understand this passage, it will be helpful to briefly mention some of the preceding events. Chapter 6 begins with the familiar passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And after Jesus had fed the crowds, they concluded in verse 14, This is truly the prophet to come into the world. They believed that their former great prophet Moses had fed them the manna from heaven. And now they have discerned that Jesus is something of a new Moses who has come to fill their carnal desires and take care of their physical needs. They ate and were filled, verse 12 says, and wanting to take Jesus by force to make him king as if he was already not king, verse 15 says, Jesus withdraws himself from them. The disciples, they got into the boat. They left as Jesus commanded. And while they headed for Capernaum, a town that was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And at some point in the night, that's when we get the scene of Jesus walking on the water. The storm came, the disciples saw Jesus, he was walking on the water, and he gets into the boat. And it says in verse 21, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This was a supernatural miracle. He steps into the boat, and instantly they're at their destination. Verse 22 says, with our context in our passage, on the next day, the crowds began To hunt down Jesus. And not only the people whom he originally fed. But his fame had obviously spread to more crowds. Because people from Tiberias were coming to this place. In order to get some free food. And when they got there. The first thing that they noticed. Is that Jesus was not there. Surely they would have seen Jesus. If he walked around the sea. Someone would have spotted him around one of those towns. Around the Sea of Galilee. And so not knowing how in the world he slipped away, the text says in verse 24, they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now this is huge. The crowds are seeking Jesus and the natural man says, praise God. It's always a good thing to seek Jesus, right? Not realizing that there is a false way to seek him. There is a carnal way to seek Jesus. There is a worldly way to seek Jesus. There is a self-righteous way. Our word seeking here involves a passionate act of the will. Although it involves the brain to some degree, obviously, the emphasis is on the fact of their raw, passionate seeking. They are driven by their emotions. They are driven by their passions. And this is a kind of passionate seeking is seen in a positive light sometimes in Matthew thirteen forty-five with the merchant who is seeking beautiful pearls. 
or the desperate housewife seeking to find the lost coin in her home in Luke 15, 8. But in a negative sense, it sometimes can refer to a fierce hatred, such as when Judas was seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. You remember that Jesus calls his hearers to seek first the kingdom of God. And that is where our passionate seeking should be. Man is to set his mind on heavenly things and have his passions directed towards that. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above and not on the things which are below. A passionate seeking that is divorced from the truth is a very dangerous thing. And that's what these guys are. This is a passion that is rottenness to the bones. And how passionate were they? Well, they were willing to get in their boats, not really knowing where Jesus is, and track Jesus down across the Sea of Galilee, not even sure where he went. As one of my professors said at TMS, religious people are nuts. Like a mob of unreasoning hungry animals, they cross the sea with the hopes that maybe they'll fill their bellies. And because the crowds were guided by their passion, there are two characteristics of their Jesus-seeking that is worth noting as we talk about self-righteousness. One, the text emphasizes, look at this, they themselves were seeking Jesus. They were not seeking Jesus as a result of the Father's work, as Jesus would clarify later. Verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. You see, it is the Father who creates true seekers. The Father draws sinners. And the Father gives sinners to Jesus. And the Father himself is said to seek after worshipers, John 4.23. Man seeks God only because God first sought him. Man may seek the benefits of God, but Romans 3.11 crushes man's self-righteousness by saying, There is none who seeks for God. True, they're seeking Jesus, but they were seeking him according to the flesh for physical needs. They possessed no concern for spiritual needs because that would involve admitting they're unrighteous. And we don't want to do that because we're self-righteous. And that's the second characteristic of their Jesus seeking. They sought him only for temporal and physical needs, not spiritual. Well, verse 25 says that they eventually found him. And they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And understand what they're really asking. How in the world did you get all the way over here on the other side of the sea without a boat? Nor did you pass through any of the towns. No one spotted you. How did this happen? And Jesus, knowing their heart, does not entertain the question. Because he did not want the conversation to get derailed from their greatest need, from the real issue, which is self-righteousness. John 2.24 says, Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He's omniscient. Because Jesus loves them, he does not allow the fickle crowds to hyper-focus on his miracle of walking on water. You see, love rejoices in the truth, 1 Corinthians 13.6. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, keeps the conversation tethered to their greatest need, confronting their self-righteousness and the need for forgiveness. And with that said, the curtain closes for season one, or scene one, the self-righteous seekers, and then we open it up for scene two, the self-righteous opposition. Jesus, without hesitation, calls them out for their unrighteous motives. They wanted Jesus to fill their stomachs with more bread, It's not because they saw the signs that they wanted this. They sought after him, but it was for the food. They wanted their bellies filled. See, a sign is an indicator to authenticate a message. 
In John's gospel, the word sign is often accompanied by the works of God. And these works show themselves to authenticate God's special revelation, i.e. the word of God itself. Jesus spoke the word of truth, and in fact, he claimed to be the very truth itself. He is the word incarnate, John 1.14. And so his works are the very works of God that validate the gospel message that he preached to everyone. But the Jews were not interested in that message. To them, the signs that Jesus did only pointed back to the filling of their carnal desires. The word filled is an interesting word. It it often refers to just temporal filling, the physical needs. It's there for a moment. That's the idea. And the Old Testament picture of this is the concept of the grass of the field that is there for a moment and then it withers away whenever the heat comes, like in Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7. Peter and James, they pick up on this concept to emphasize the brevity of life, something that is temporal. Like in James 2.16, it says, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. What's the idea of that? A physical, temporal need needing to be filled. Well, the picture of, with the picture of temporal or physical feeling in your mind, I want you to consider our text again. You seek me not because you saw signs, i.e. the works of God, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled, because your physical and temporal needs were met for a moment. Well, Jesus has concern not just for their physical needs, as was demonstrated in the feeding of the 5,000, But he is far more concerned for their souls. And the crowds could care less. They didn't care that the signs pointed to the saving message for the forgiveness of sins. They thought that they could, the signs were nothing more than a golden ticket to an all you can eat buffet. The Jews were temporarily filled and were hungry again. Jesus satisfied them for a moment. But due to their self-righteous hearts, they were not seeking spiritual food. They sought that which would make them continually hunger. The self-righteous soul, friend, is never satisfied. Now through this dialogue in verses 26 through 34, scene 2, the self-righteous opposition, Jesus confronts their self-righteousness by laying out three aspects of eternal life. Three aspects of eternal life in order to humble them. And the first aspect is that eternal life is mediated through Jesus alone. Look at verse 27 again. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, set his seal. Jesus commands the crowds to not work for the physical, but for the spiritual that endures. Do not keep working is written in the habitual sense, meaning the command is to avoid the never-ending, continual, monotonous work of pursuing eternal life yourself. Pursuing the food which perishes. Instead, seek the food which remains and endures forever. The food that the Jews were eating was food which perishes, unlike the food that Jesus offers, which is eternal and life-giving. And notice who gives this spiritual life that endures. The self-righteous seeker of Jesus says he conjures it up himself. But the text says, the Son of Man will give to you. Only Jesus can give the spiritual life to the world, friend. And the text tells us that he is willing. Friend, Jesus is willing to save sinners. He is willing to satisfy the soul. He will do as he says. Just as he is willing to cleanse the leper and give sight to the blind and even raise his friends from the dead. Jesus is willing to save the lost. He will heal the spiritual disease of unrighteousness. And he is willing to do so. And he possesses the authority to do it. As God himself. He of course possesses this authority. But salvation is a work of the Trinity, friends. And so Jesus, the Son of God, speaks as a man. 
empowered by the Holy Spirit, says that his Father set his seal on him. Now, having the Trinity as a witness is a pretty hefty authentication, wouldn't you think? Brethren, the triune God has established that salvation comes through Jesus alone, not through your efforts. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12 says. God the Father has set his seal on Jesus as the only mediator between God and man. A seal, it denotes God's ownership and authentication. In John 3.33, the word seal is used to refer to an attestation that Jesus' testimony is true. The point is that the Father has authenticated the message of Jesus, that the Son of Man is able to give eternal life. And knowing that the triune God seals this message of salvation, how unrighteous is the Jews' response. What works can you do? What works can I do? And can you prove it, Jesus? You see, the unrighteous opposition would not accept the exclusivity of Jesus alone because they got to take part in it. They say in verse 28, What should we do so that we may work the works of God? What a self-righteous thing to say. The English translation loses a little bit of the punch of the verse, but it literally says, What should we do so that we ourselves should work the works concerning God? Jesus, what can we do to do the work about being about the business of our Father so that we can have the bread that endures forever? See, the crowds are believing that they themselves can produce the work of God that would latch on to the food that endures forever. And it shouldn't be a surprise, after all. They themselves were seeking after Jesus for the benefit of temporal gain. It fits nicely with their workspace system that they would seek whatever they could do to obtain this never-ending food. Realizing, not realizing, that their works are but filthy rags in need of God's work to save them. They sought to self-righteously fulfill the work that God requires. Not understanding that God requires perfection, friends. Matthew 5.48 says, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. They either lowered the bar of perfection or thought that they could truly be sinless. In either case, it's self-righteousness. And so Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of working the works of God in verse 29 by giving the second aspect of eternal life. Eternal life is mediated through Christ alone. And now eternal life is given by grace alone through faith alone. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The answer Jesus gives is God produces eternal life and the response to receive it, which is faith. Again, a more literal rendering of this text is, This is the work God is working, that you should continually believe unto Him whom He has sent. Now highlight or underline or however you emphasize something in your Bible, the word that. Because that word expresses result. God produces. It is the, your faith is the product. It is the result of God's working. God produces the saving work. And man responds by continually looking to Jesus. God acts and man reacts. God does not react to man. But existing as a being who is pure act, salvation is completely and totally of God, Jonah 2.9 says. He acts, we react. He works the work of faith in, and the result is you believe. That truth destroys 
all self-righteousness. Jesus confronts the Jews by saying, even your response to the truth is not your own, but it is the sovereign work of my Father in heaven. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It, referring to by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is not a new concept with John. He has already said back in chapter 1, you'll remember verses 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, referring to adoption into his family, even to those who believe in his name. And how do these believers get adopted? By their self-righteousness? By their own doing? Because their family believes in Jesus? No. Who are born not of the blood, nor the will, nor the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And John would go on later to explain this new birth in the well-known chapter 3, when he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. John 3, verses 3 and 6. That's why those who truly have faith in Jesus never truly lose faith in Him. Because our faith is the work of Him who does not fail. Jesus is saying to the crowds, You do not see your need for salvation And your need to reject self-righteousness because you're not born from above. You're not born again. Your self-righteousness has blinded you from seeing your greatest need. You are the flesh and you reason from the flesh. That's why you think you can do the works of God to obtain your own eternal life. But the self-righteous persist in their opposition of the truth by demanding a sign from Jesus to prove his words. Verse 30 says, What then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Turn water into wine. Not good enough. Fed the 5,000. Not impressed because I'm still hungry. Miraculously appears in Capernaum. I already forgot about it. John Calvin rightly said, This wicked question clearly shows the truth of what is said elsewhere. A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign. Unbelief and self-righteousness is never satisfied. Which shows that the sinner's problem is not a lack of evidence. It's a moral issue. The problem of self-righteousness is not due to a lack of proof. Self-righteousness exists by virtue of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, pushing it down. And as any sinner seeks to justify his sinful actions, the Jews here do the same thing. In verse 31, they justify their question, What works do you perform? By quoting a verse. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So now they want to quote the word of God to the incarnate word of God, following after their father, the devil. And it is astounding how they flip this verse on its head. In Exodus 16, that's where they're pulling this from. In Exodus 16, verse 15, it says, And the sons of Israel saw it and said to one another, What is it? What is it means manna. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which Yahweh has given you to eat. Who gave it? Yahweh. The Jews in Jesus' day thought that Moses gave them the bread. But the scripture is clear that Yahweh gave them the bread from heaven. And the reason why we know that they thought that Moses gave them the bread from heaven to eat is because of Jesus' follow-up statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread. It's unbelievable, right? They thought that Moses gave them the bread. And not only this, 
But in Exodus 16.4 it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, get this, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. God gave the bread from heaven in order to test Israel. And now Israel is quoting a scripture to test God's only begotten son. Insidious self-righteousness. But Jesus responds in verse 32 and 33 with the third aspect of eternal life. Eternal life is mediated through Christ alone. Eternal life is given by grace through faith alone. And thirdly, eternal life is heavenly and life-giving. Heavenly and life-giving. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus patiently responds to the self-righteous opponents by asserting the heavenly origin of the manna and its spiritual significance. Moses never gave Israel bread. Yahweh was the one who had given them bread. And notice the tense. Moses did not give past tense, but my father gives present tense. They want to see, and then they will believe. And Jesus tells them that God sent them the true bread, is presently sending it right before their very eyes. And that they were presently rejecting it. God was presently giving them bread, and they were presently rejecting the bread that they were supposedly asking for. That's what self-righteousness does. It's not satisfied with God. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The manna in the wilderness was a foreshadowing of the true bread from heaven. The manna gave Israel temporal satisfaction to which they hungered again. The true bread comes from heaven and gives eternal life to the world by virtue of grace through faith. It can only be Jesus through whom eternal life can be dispensed. Only God is able to take away sins, friends. And only man can pay for sin. And so in the wisdom of God, God the Son joins himself to a human nature in our likeness. Lives the perfect life of righteousness. That standard that God requires of every one of us. And he accomplishes salvation for sinners like us on the cross. Dying on the cross and then rising On the third day, pronouncing victory over death. Death has lost its sting. Jesus is the true bread that the manna foreshadowed. But the Jews didn't get it. Blinded by their own works-based system, they said, Lord, always give us this bread. Always give me eternal life because i got to keep working for it. Always give me this physical sustenance because i got to keep getting filled. They were still focused on the physical and not the spiritual. And they asked Jesus to always fill their physical needs. Jesus, that's great. Keep giving me the bread that will never satisfy my souls, but always fill my carnal desires. We want food. And it is on this darkened understanding that we close scene two and move on to scene three. Scene three The soul-saving sustenance. And in this final scene of confronting self-righteousness, we see that Jesus reveals God's will to save and preserve sinners forever. God is the great end of the gospel, friends. The chief prize of everyone who believes in Christ is that he gets peace with Almighty God. Self-righteousness is not content to receive God as himself as the chief delight of the soul. But rather it uses God as a means to an end to which they find their ultimate satisfaction in themselves. I agree with the Westminster divines who said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
Psalm 29.1 says, Ascribe to Yahweh, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh glory of his name. Worship Yahweh in splendor of holiness. And not just mere mechanical, robotic ascription of glory due to God. But the Lord requires a heartfelt, an affectionate ascription of glory to be accompanied with delight. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Man's greatest good is to find all of his worth and all of his joy in God. It was John Piper who famously said, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. Jesus asserts in this final scene that he himself is the life-giving sustenance that accomplishes man's greatest need for the forgiveness of sins and supplies his greatest good, peace with God. The sinner gets God. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, when you want to say something won't happen, you just kind of casually say it. Yeah, it won't happen. But if you want to eliminate any realm of possibility, you would say something like, it won't never, ever, 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 ever happen. And the language Jesus uses here is the strongest way to negate something in the Greek language. He removes all potentiality for someone to lose their salvation. It is not even a possibility to lose one's salvation any more than it is possible for God to fail at his work of working the work of faith in the believer. And to say that someone could stop believing is to say that God reneged on his commitment to work the work of faith in those whom he saves. And friends, take joy in the fact that we serve a God who does not change. There is no variation or shifting shadow with him. Malachi says that I am Yahweh, I do not change. The one who possesses faith in Jesus, friends, is said to continually believe and consequently never, ever hunger or thirst. The self-righteous seekers wanted another Moses to give them 613 laws to obey and fill their physical needs. But friends, someone better than Moses is here. Moses gave the temporal foreshadowing of the sustenance of life. But Jesus says, I am the sustenance. I am the bread. He is the better Moses, whom Hebrews 3.3 says, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Moses gave the shadowy blueprint of the house. But Jesus is the builder of the house who extends an invitation to come and dwell with him forever. Partake of eternal life by virtue of faith in him and you will have spiritual security. But sadly, we read in verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They say, give us a sign. Jesus says, I am the sign. They say, when we see, then we will believe. Jesus says, no, you won't, because you see me and still do not believe. Literally, the emphasis is on their present continual state of unbelief. You are not believing. The word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. Self-righteousness is blinding. And so in these final verses, Jesus spells it out to them. It couldn't be any clearer than this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The sovereignty of God is the slayer of all self-righteousness. Because if it is God and God alone who saves, and if it is through Christ and through Christ alone whom salvation is given, and if even our response is nothing more but a reaction to God's saving grace, then we must confess that eternal life has nothing to do with us. We are the transactional love gift from the Father to the Son. Not because of our inherent worth, We're sinners, but because of the worthiness of the one who loves us. It's all by God and for God's glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things to the glory of God forever. Romans 11, 36. Amen. The Jews could not accept that. Man's supposed absolute libertarian free will will not accept it. And so knowing this, Jesus emphasizes God's will. What man would never do, nor even possess the ability to do, God accomplishes through His Son by His will. God the Father wills to give some to Jesus, and Jesus wills to not lose any that the Father gives to Him, but to see them to glory, so that they may gain their greatest good, God Himself. Now, here are a couple of things worth noting as we see Jesus as the very soul-saving sustenance. Very important that you know this. One, the origin of Christ matches the origin of the bread from heaven that Jesus said in verse 32. This is a clear declaration of his deity. Jesus is God. He is sourced from God as the only begotten of the Father. Back in John 5, 26, this has already been explained. He has already taught the crowds that he is God's son, very God and truly God himself. John 5, 26 says, For just as the Father has life of himself, God life, even so he gave to the Son to also have life in himself, God life. In the same sense that God the Father has life in himself, He is given to the Son to have life in Himself. And the life of Jesus that He possesses is eternally given to Him by the Father so that there was never a moment, friends, when Jesus was not the eternally begotten Son of God. Trinitarianism is spelled out explicitly. That is who God is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The eternally begotten Son of God. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit eternally, John will go on to say, proceeds from the Father and the Son in chapters 14.26-15.26. Easy way to remember the relations of the Trinity. 5.26-14.26-15.26. Eternally begotten, eternally proceeding. So there is unity and there is distinction. There is one nature and there is three persons that are distinct by their eternal relations, unbegotten, begotten, and proceeding. Now I want you to take all that, let's get out of the clouds and let's come back to verse 38. We learn that the eternally begotten one of God comes down from heaven. And as God himself may rightly declare that he himself is the very soul-saving sustenance. Only God can save. And Jesus says that he is the very sustenance that saves sinners, declaring himself to be God. And so number one, Jesus is the soul-saving sustenance by virtue of his deity. The Jews are rejecting God. Now, the second thing worth noting is the humanity of our Lord. Notice again at verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not my will, he says. He says, but the will of my Father. Now, you know that God is one. There is not three gods. 
Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. So there's not three wills in God. That would be called tritheism, an old heresy that asserts that there are three gods who are united in one purpose. But there is one will in God, and yet our Lord Jesus says that he came not to do his will, but the will of his Father. You know what that means? This Jesus, our soul-saving sustenance, the slayer of all self-righteousness, the eternally begotten Son of God, in coming down from heaven, he took upon himself a human nature, a nature like ours, complete with everything it means to be human, including a separate human will. Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. Philippians 2. Friends, the only begotten Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took upon himself a human nature like ours and submitted his human will to the Father as a representative for sinners like us. He is the soul-saving sustenance. He was not as the self-righteous seeker who does his own will for his own glory. But Jesus, by virtue of his humanity, submits to the Father so that he may be the true bread of heaven, the only mediator between God and man who redeems our fallen self-righteous wills with perfect obedience. The Son of God has come down from heaven, possessing life of himself to freely give to those without cost. And the Son of Man has submitted with perfect obedience so that we should have peace with God. Now finally, we come to the end of our passage and Jesus sums up the work of God and man's appropriate response. Verse 39, God wills that everyone whom he gives to the Son will not be lost. Everyone the Father gives to the Son, He saves and preserves. And the Son accomplishes that salvation on their behalf and promises to see them to glory. For those in Christ, friends, death has lost its sting. The resurrection that God provides through His Son is so much better than the creation of Adam in the garden in paradise. I want you to think about this. Adam was able to sin and not able to sin. And after the fall, man could do nothing but sin because we are nothing but a sinful nature and operate under our flesh. And after conversion, you're free to obey God, but we still wage war with this unwelcome guest of indwelling sin that dwells in us. But after we die, we will have no capacity to sin free from the miserable presence of sin, free to worship God with unhindered loyalty forever. This is what the Son of God, Jesus, the soul-saving sustenance, promises you today. Unless you want to confess that Jesus can fail at his task, friends, you are forced to believe that he will complete the good work that he began in us. Those he saves are his delight. He will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. It is the Father, through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that secures a believer forever. Our security is grounded in the triune God, there is no possibility, no contingency that a believer will ever, ever, ever hunger or thirst again. Because this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And Jesus Himself will raise Him up on the last day. To see the Son, it means to comprehend Him. It's not talking so much about a physical sight. It refers to the spiritual eyes of the heart being opened to behold the Son of Light. 
You see, Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. But friends, today I lay before you Jesus, who opens the eyes of the blind. Verse 6, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So much there in those texts, but for our case in John, it is sufficient to say that those whom God shines the light of Christ in our heart through knowing him are the very ones who behold Christ in saving faith. While self-righteous seekers are characterized by their abandonment of Christ, true followers are those given by God to the Son, given spiritual eyes to persevere forever. In verse 66, sums up the end of self-righteousness. As a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. But true seekers are those who confess with Peter in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. How can you be so confident, Peter? How is, your, how is it that your faith perseveres when everyone else seems to be abandoning the Lord at this time? Jesus gives the answer in verse 70. Did I myself not choose you? One of them was a devil chosen to, as the son of perdition to glorify God by virtue of his justice. But those who persevere are those sovereignly chosen and sealed by God. Now that is a radically different message than the self-righteous assessment of salvation. The self-righteous are sealed by their own effort. The saved are sealed by God. We've seen three scenes that condemn self-righteousness. We saw the self-righteous seekers who look for Jesus by themselves and for themselves. We saw the self-righteous opposition that bucks up against God's grace. And we saw the soul-saving sustenance, Jesus Christ, the God-man who is willing to save sinners. So what are we to do about all this? Well, first, I want you to acknowledge how glorious it is that the Father seeks worshipers and has sought you to worship Him today. That is such an incredible devotional thought. That regardless of your works, whether good or bad, God has chosen and given you to his son so that he would accomplish salvation for sinners like us. The Christian life, friend, is not about what you do for God. In fact, David Dixon sums up the Christian life very well. While on his deathbed, he says, I have taken all my bad deeds and I put them on a heap. And I have taken all my good deeds and I have put them on the same heap. And I've run from that heap into the arms of Jesus. I die in peace. Friend, consider this. Look at the pile of your good deeds and bad. And then ditch them both. Considering it all worthless. And run into the arms of Jesus who by his merits is your righteousness. Because he did it all. He lived the life you owe. Died the death that sinners deserve on the cross and rose three days later on behalf of those whom the Father has given and sealed by the blood of the eternally begotten Son of God. Now perhaps some of you are still laboring under the power of your self-righteousness. Tell me, why is it that you even possess an interest in Jesus? Is it for the forgiveness of sins? Or is it for health, wealth, prosperity, so you won't get sick anymore? Is it for temporal benefits? Friend, you need to know if that is you, in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that love rejoices in the truth, you need to know that your soul is in serious peril. And the Lord will give you the wages of your self-righteousness, which is hell. But today, dear sinner, God offers you terms of peace. You can be saved because God sent his son to live and die for sinners and extends the hand of grace to you now. Repent and come to the end of your self-righteousness. 
recognizing that it is all the work of God and nothing of yourselves. And Jesus has promised you to raise you up on the last day to everlasting glory. Now that is a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the grace that is given through your Son. And Father, I pray as you, the all-present one, would hem in our hearts and not let any self-righteousness escape unnoticed. But Father, I pray that you would condemn our self-righteousness as it is already condemned, but give us recognition of this, that the saved in here would be sanctified and that those still operating by the power of their flesh, Father, would be saved. Please, Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of all of our hearts to love Christ more than we did than when we walked in. We love you. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.